families in our church right now that are facing medical issues, surgeries, um, uh, other medical issues, uh, things that, that, that we know about, things we don't know about, financial issues, uh, relationship issues. Um, it's also spring break, so we've got people that are traveling, and we want to just make sure that they're safe and, and know that we're, we're praying for them and loving on them. So if, we'll, if you'll just bow your head with me for just a minute, we will pray and uh, um, then see what God has to tell us today. So, Heavenly Father, um, I know there's many heavy, burdened hearts in our room today and in our world today. Medical issues, money issues, relationship issues. Relationships with family, spouses, relationships at work, relationships with you. People might feel farther away from you than they ever have and are wanting to know how to get back to you, Lord. But Father, as we just saying, I could sing of your love forever. You have shown us that unconditional, unwavering love. And when we experience that and we fall in love with the love that you give us, Lord, we can love the world around us. And we know times are hard, times are, are, are painful, but that you are there for us, Lord. And we just pray for everybody in our faith family, everybody in our community, that your love would pour down upon them and whatever issue they're dealing with in their life, Lord. And it might just be as simple as we're traveling for spring break and we need safety, Lord. That you would just bless them. You would comfort them. You would love them, Lord. Because we know that you sent your son to die on the cross for us because you loved us. Because you loved the world so much, you sent your son to die on the cross for us. That for those of us that believe, that accept that, that when he rose again, we gained eternal life. I just pray that you impress that upon us this morning. It's in your precious holy name we pray. Amen. So, kiddos, you can head on out. Today we're going to finish our series on the parables, and we spent the last five weeks, this is week six actually, the last six weeks, looking at the life that Jesus has called us to live, uh, and, and today we want to wrap that up, and hopefully you can, can have seen throughout this that there's this overarching theme that Jesus wants. We've looked at, um, at what it means to, to live, our life that's ded- live a life that's dedicated to him. Uh, and, and how when we do that, we bear fruit in our lives, um, what that looks like with a, when we put a foundation of faith in Jesus, how to be a good neighbor, what it means to, to be discipled and to understand the cost of discipleship that came through that. And then last week we looked at, like, at what it means to be part of a biblical community. And all that's going to wrap up today into the, the main reason why we, he's calling us to do that. And it's for one simple reason. And I'm going to tell it to you right off the bat. And then we'll look at why, why it is that. And that one simple reason that Jesus tells us all throughout the parables to live this way is to glorify God. Our life here on earth is not to glorify us. It's not to live a happy life, although that is a product of what can come from that. Our life here on earth is to glorify God. 
And Jesus tells us this throughout the entire section of parables here, um, throughout, throughout the Gospels. Its main purpose is to glorify God. If you live a life like this, your life is going to glorify the Father. And so we're going to look at this today where he really breaks it down and tells us. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 13 through 16. But we're going to start in verse 11. But I want to read read you a a verse before we do that and, 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 and tell you that, you know, when Jesus says that, this is how we're supposed to live our life through the par- in the parables. This is how we're supposed to live our life so we can glorify God. He's telling us that if you want to be like me, you have to live like me. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to live like Jesus. Look at what 1 John 2, 6 says. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so when Jesus uses these stories, when he uses these illustrations to, to teach the people of the day how to live a life like him he then uses his life as an example of that and so for us today when we live our life like Jesus people experience Jesus through us and we become in a way like Jesus we're never going to be Jesus I want you to hear me that we're never going to be able to live a perfect sinless blameless life on this earth, but we can live a life that is, an, is, is like the example Jesus gave us. And I see this happening all the time in our world, and, and we have to be very careful with this. You know, Scripture says, be in, in the world, not of the world. And we, and we start to see us get into things that, that the world begins to infiltrate the, the Christian, the, the secular world begins to infiltrate the Christian world and we start to, to kind of muddy, muddy the waters of what is really true and what's not. And that's why I, th- I want us to understand that here at First Baptist Mason, we are going to go to God's word first and then put it th- things through that filter. And so when we want to learn how to live our life, we're going to look at what God says and what Jesus tells us here in the Gospels about how to live our lives because it's real easy to think that a cause or something that's out there is, is something that Christians are supposed to do. And there are things that we're supposed to do. But there's things that Christians are supposed to do that we go out and do. And people in the, in the, that aren't believers and in the real world, they do them exactly the same way, right? And there's nothing that really sets us apart when people look at it. But when we do it in the name and in the love of Jesus and we live our lives and do that and it becomes an outflowing, we bear fruit with our lives, it becomes an outflowing of our lives, people see Jesus in that. And God is glorified when that happens because we go and we become a good neighbor. And we went, and I'll use the example of, of the ice storm and, and, and serving food. We didn't do that to make our name known. We did that to make God's name known. Because people in their greatest time of need are looking for somewhere to turn. And people, when their hearts are broken and in their greatest time of need, they need to find Jesus. And so we want to do these things. We want to live this life to glorify God. And so here in Matthew chapter 5, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus goes on for several chapters of, of the book of Matthew preaching this sermon. It's, like I said earlier, it's the longest single set of scripture of Jesus speaking um, tied together. And in, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, there is a, a section of this sermon that's called the Beatitudes. 
And the Beatitudes are basically blessings. Blessings. And, 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 he, and he reads them off and he says, Blessed are the, the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. And he's speaking, saying, Blessed are those. He's speaking in a, uh, in a, a, a third person. And then he switches. And look in verse 11. He says, Rejoice in... Matthew chapter 5 verse 11 says this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. And then in verse 12 he says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in the beginning of the Beatitudes, notice he's saying, Blessed are those. And he's teaching the disciples here. He's speaking to them, teaching them about the ways. And he said, blessed are those. And then in verse 11, he changes and said, blessed are you. He changes the, the, the point of, of view. And now he's directly addressing them. So what does this word blessing mean? Well, if you look at the Greek, it comes from the Greek word makarios. Everybody say that with me. Makarios. Makarios. I love this word. I think it just rolls off the tongue. Makarios. And it means blessed or happy. And so if you look at the Beatitudes and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, happy are the poor in spirit. And this is a whole sermon series in and of itself that we're not going to touch on today. But when we get to verse 11 and Jesus changes the point of view, changes the, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the speech to from blessed are those to blessed are you. And now he's speaking right to them. The tone of the blessing also changes. He goes from things like blessed are the merciful, merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, to blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This doesn't sound real promising, doesn't it? He's like, it's about to get rough for you. Jesus is using the Beatitudes to realign people's perspectives. He's using it to institute a new set of core values for people to live their lives. And when he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, he's directly saying, when you do these other things that I've mentioned previously, This is about to happen because now it's you. I'm pointing directly at you. And I I think about this as like I'm sitting in school. When I was a kid, I had a ninth grade algebra class that was this way. And and, and the class is acting crazy. You ever been in that class? Everything's going nuts. And, and, and if you're a teacher, like you're just at your, your, your last end of your rope, just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to keep my job? Because I'm about to explode on these people. Because the whole class is acting a fool. And, and the teacher comes in and begins to, dis- or the principal walks in. I never failed that the principal walked by my class when we were doing this. And he would walk in. And he begins to discipline the whole class. And you're one of the main parts of the problem in that moment, but the whole class is getting disciplined, and you're like, okay, cool, I'm going to get off scot-free, you know, because it's this over, overarching theme of y'all better start acting right, the entire class, the entire class is going to be held after class and detention and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, he turns and looks right at you with this laser focus, and it says, but you 
I'm calling your mom. Right? And my mom's sitting over here today. She traveled down for spring break. So um, she, she never really got those calls. It was more about not turning in homework. Um, but, um, but when he looks you right in the eye and he's like, you are going to have detention. I'm going to call your parents. You know you're in trouble, right? Like it changes the whole tone of the message. When it's the whole class, it's like, I'm not really going to pay attention because we're all doing this and nothing's really going to happen. They can't punish the whole class, right? But when he turns and goes straight to you, you perk up a little bit. You start to listen a little bit. So when Jesus moves from blessed are those to blessed are you because you're about to experience this persecution, the disciples probably perked up a little bit. They're like, oh, wow, he's speaking right at me now. I need to pay attention to this. He's been speaking in vague, broad terms, and now he's focused directly on them. Verse 10, if you look back just a, a second at verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who, persecu- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's already bringing in persecution, but then when he gets to verse 11, it said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he tells them to rejoice in that. Rejoice and be glad in this persecution. Rejoice that someone is mad at you for what you stand up for, for what you live for. Rejoice because someone's upset that you are a follower of me. Jesus is saying, in essence, that the disciples live the way that he's just lined out. Their, that life that they would live would put them into the... Because look at the end of verse uh, 12. It's going to put them, the disciples into the succession of God's faithful servants. Because he says in verse 12, your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you read throughout the Old Testament, the prophets were persecuted for the things that they taught. Now the disciples are about to, to, to endure that. He's, he's telling them, you're going to fall in line with this. And this great lineage of people that have come before you. And I believe that, that, that the church today is going to be part of that as well. We see persecution starting to rise up more and more every day in the church. The, the IF gathering showed a video of, of the church in Iran and, and the persecution they, they undergo. And so oftentimes it's, it's actual physical, violent persecution. Other times it's in the political realm. The church is being attacked every day. And not, not, the, not, not the church, the, the walls here at 325 College, but, but the institution of the universal church. The beliefs that we stand for. Just had something go into um, Congress uh, just over the past week, which is the Equality Act. Which is an attack on, on, on genders and, 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 and sexuality and, and, and against things that, it, that if it fully goes through, the church is going to face consequences due to that act the persecution is rising but the thing that we have to understand is that when the persecution rises against the church when things get tough against the church when times seem so dire that's when the church explodes because the church is growing faster and faster than ever before in the places that are persecuted they talked about it this weekend in iran you look in myanmar they're going after the christians in myanmar in china the church is exploding to the point that they're sending missionaries to the United States. We've always sent missionaries to the other side of the world. Now they're sending them here because they've experienced what it means to be desperate for Jesus. 
to live that life for Jesus because there's nothing else they have. We get very complacent in the way we live our lives for Jesus. And we think we do some good things. And so Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. You've been following me. These disciples have been with him. You're going to experience great persecution, but it's going to be good. And then he transitions and he says that because of this, because of, of, of what I just told you, I want to show you what that life is going to look like that's going to do that. What are you going to do in your life that's going to cause people to persecute you? What are you going to do in your life that's going to cause people to not want to be around you? To go against everything you say. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And you've heard this. It's not an uncommon scripture. But Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is probably one of the most popular, uh, most well-known uh, passages that Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then you continue in verse 14 through 16, and we'll look at this a little bit closer in a minute. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There it is. We're doing this for God's glory. We're doing this for glory to the Father who is in heaven. So Jesus begins, and we've got two various elements at play here. We've got salt and we've got light. And they're very distinctive, but they also have similarities. Different characteristics, but definitely some things that you can look at apart. So let's look at salt first. The first element is salt. He tells the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. What does he mean when he says this? Well, if you know anything about salt, you know that it's got many, many properties and functions. Salt can be used as a preservative. Before the dawn of refrigeration, they would sprinkle salt on all of their meat so that it wouldn't go spoil as quickly. It can be used as a binding agent to help bring proteins together. If you um, were to go into your pantry or into your spice rack and pull out something, bet you find salt at the top of the list, near the top of the list on just about everything. It also brings flavor. It helps rehydration. It allows the body to increase its absorption. And it contains essential minerals that our body needs to function. Lots of things that salt can happen. And the imagery, imagery that Jesus uses here is illustrating how essential salt is in our daily lives. Because as we look at all of our food and all of the, the, the different uses for it, I was trying to find salt when the ice was here to help break up the salt so I could walk around. Salt has so many different purposes. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And the salt he's using here is a twofold purpose. First, he's using it as a preservative, an example of a preservative. Well, what does a preservative do? It preserves. It protects. The preservative nature of salt is it prevents things from spoiling. It prevents things from being corrupted by the bacteria and other microorganisms that are going to attack that food. Salt is, forms a barrier around that. If we look throughout scripture, we see that man is inherently corrupt. We are that bacteria and microorganism that's attacking that food. We have a sin nature. It begins in, with the fall uh, in Genesis 3. Sin enters the world and begins to corrupt And as we look throughout scripture, we consistently see salt as a symbolic reference 
to how to keep this corruption out of the world. So when we look at our lives as salt, we see that we can preserve and protect the world from this corruption. When you are the salt of the world and you're taking the love of Christ and the words that he's given us in the scriptures to the world, we're protecting the world from the corruption of the enemy. When we speak truth in love, the truth that God has given us in love, we are keeping the evil words away from people. So we are a preservative, so to speak, when we are the salt of the world, salt of the earth. The second use of the word here is as a flavor enhancer. Salt brings taste. I love to add salt to popcorn. It's not good without popcorn. I mean, popcorn's not good without salt, sorry. Salt is good without popcorn, but popcorn's not good without salt. Y'all are tracking with me, I know you are. And you've heard me talk about brisket before. The best brisket has a bark that has a distinctive salt flavor to it. When you bite into that, you can just, all the flavors mix together, but then, boom, there's the salt. That just makes my mouth water. Salt brings out the best in food. And here's the thing. What happens when you put too much salt in something? It's bad. A little salt goes a long way. And the rabbi would use salt as a, as a reference to wisdom. When Jesus is talking about losing saltiness here in, in, verses, uh, in verse 14 or verse 13, when it says salt has lost its taste, how should its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is a reference to the rabbi use of the, the illustration of salt for wisdom. What happens when salt loses its effectiveness? It doesn't work anymore. You have to get rid of it. And the rabbi would have been teaching about losing saltiness as losing wisdom and starting to act foolishly, starting to do things that didn't line up with what your life said. So if you're living this life of righteousness that Jesus not only talks about in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, but all throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of his time on earth, if you begin to lose that wisdom, that that, that, the, the wisdom that he's sharing here, and you begin to live your life that way, and you lose it and start that foolishly, it's very hard to gain that back. When you damage or lose your reputation, it's very hard to gain that back. And we are seeing this all the time. We see it in, um, in politics. We see it in cor- the corporate world. Somebody who has gained their position in life because they are smart, savvy, wise beyond their years, and they start to do foolish things. And it gets out into the public, and the public crucifies them. And they lose their status. They lose their job. They have to resign. I was reading two instances this morning. One is a football coach that's about to lose his job at a well-known university. And the other is a governor that's about to lose his job because they've started doing foolish things. Once you lose that, it's hard to gain it back. We also see it in ministry. I read a third article this morning about a pastor who is doing something foolish and saying foolish things that is probably going to lose his credibility as well. Already has. When we start to lose that saltiness, when we start to lose that influence because we've set wisdom aside, we lose our effectiveness in the world 
to glorify God. So Jesus is giving him a warning there. You are the salt of the earth. Be careful. Don't lose it. Salt represents our inward character that influences a decaying world. Key word there. Three key words. Inward character influences. What's on the inside influences. The salt, it's in recipes, it's a binding agent, we use it as a preservative. That's what's inside our hearts. When we fill ourselves with Jesus, the salt of the earth is our inward character. And the inward character influences the world. Can influence it good and it can influence it bad. I love this quote from Greg Laurie because one of the things that salt also does as part of the rehydration process, it not only opens up your, your body's ability to absorb, but have you ever had something really salty? What do you want to do after you've eaten that? You want something to drink really bad, right? You thirst. Salt, Greg Laurie, uh, an evangelist from California, says salt stimulates thirst. When you walk with Jesus, you stimulate a thirst for God in others. That inward character, because you are walking with Jesus, influences others to come to know him. And then he transitions and he moves from the inward to the outward. And he goes from salt to light. Light, when we think of salt, we think frequently of putting salt onto something, into something, putting it in a recipe. When we look at the ingredients list, it's everywhere, but it's usually one of the first ingredients. The inward character of you is super important as much as salt is super important to the things that you cook. But so is the outward. Because light influences the world. It's how people see. Jesus continues in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And it continues on and it says, The same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just as salt has fundamental properties to it that makes it essential, so does light. Light provides warmth. It allows us to function. We get our work done throughout the day when we have sunlight and thanks to technology we can keep on working after hours, after dark. Because it lights our house. Never understood fully how important light was until a couple weeks ago when we lost light. And, and when we were moving here, I remember researching Mason and Mason County and finding out that it's one of the dark counties. You know, it's designated a dark county. And, and I'm like, that's cool. You know, I, 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 I grew up in the city and the big, big you know, lights everywhere. And then that night, we had gone to, to pick up some dinner and the power went out while we were waiting on it. And I got back on the road and I was like, wow, this is dark. It's like, no, like if I didn't have lights on the car, like I really would be in pure pitch black darkness. Light illuminates, allows us to see. If I didn't have those lights that night, I probably wouldn't have a car because I would have hit like 12 deer before I even realized I hit one. Jesus tells the disciples here, after he says, you are the salt of the earth, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light to the world. 
It's interesting because in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says something very similarly but distinctively different. He says here in John 8, chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus proclaims himself as the light of the world. But then he tells the disciples, you are the light of the world. What is he saying there? You're a reflection. You take the light that God has given you and send it. If you know anything about how space works, the only light source, um, the, the main light source for our, our world is the sun. And the moon does not produce any light. All the moon does is reflect the light from the sun. We are reflecting the light that God has given us to the world. That's how we light up the world. When you light up one room, you can see it in other rooms. And then if you put a mirror on it, it would reflect it into that other room and light that up. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have light in the life. Light brings life. The light brings life. If Jesus is the light and he brings life, then we experience that we now have that light. And we can share that off. So if we have this notion that Jesus is the light and he brings life, that when we are the light of the world, we are carrying this light he's given us. But here's the thing. We talk about light of the world. And today, we have the capability of taking that light to the entire world. But not all of us will do that. But when he says you're the light of the world, I believe that he's talking about the world that you live in. And we each live in different worlds. Those worlds that we live in, we're calling our circles of influence. The people that you interact with. Now, for me, I have these circles that I interact with in different parts of my life, and that has expanded. I've had the opportunity to go to several parts of the different parts of the world, different countries, to share this light with those. But each time I have come back and gone back to my day-to-day world of the people I interact with, that's the, that's the world that I am to light up. The time, the season of my life right now, Jesus has called, or God has called me um, to Mason. To help be the light to Mason. My circle of influence is now in Mason and Mason County and and, um, some areas beyond. And and that's my focus. And each of you has that. It might be where you work. It might be your family. It might be the friends that you run with or the the parents on the sports team that your kid is involved in. That's your circle of influence. And that's where you can be the light to the world. The groups that we interact with. When we receive the light, we shine the light onto them. That's how we change the world. Because then their circle of influence is a little bit different than ours. And then the next one's a little bit different than that one. And we begin to interact with them and share that light. And that light just begins to bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce and illuminate the world. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples here. Be a light to the world that you are in. And if you look further throughout the New Testament, those disciples ended up not all being together the rest of their lives. They went to many different places and shined that light. Then he says in verse, uh, moves on in this passage, and he says, The city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
And this is reference to what John preached on last week. A city of light, a biblical community on a hill. One of the first things I noticed about First Baptist Mason when we started to, to pursue if this was where God was leading us is, is the location of the church in town. Where is it? It's on a hill. We can look over, and, and, and on a good day, you can see, see around. We're on the way up a hill. We are a city on a hill. Reference to biblical community. When we all come together with our lights, it becomes brighter and brighter. One of the movies that I love to watch, it's, you know, I have several movies in my life that I could just turn on and watch and have it behind. It's a movie called The Finest Hours. And it came out several years ago. And it's about a true story um, about a U.S. Coast Guard um, officer um, in in Massachusetts. And um, his name's Bernie Weber. And if you're familiar with this story, this is back in the 1950s. Um, There was a really bad storm off the coast of uh, Massachusetts. I have to work really hard to say that word. I apologize. Um, That's the one word in my vocabulary that I cannot say. Um, But um, uh, there's a really bad storm. And, and, and right off the coast, there's a sandbar. And, and, and because of the, the tides and the waves and everything, the sandbar is always moving and, and, and readjusting. And so it's very hard to get a, a, a small vessel, a small boat that the Coast Guard had at the time over the bar um, safely, especially in bad weather. And there was a, a tanker ship that was coming in. And it was not far off the coast, but it was far enough out that they would have to cross the bar. And the, and the storm had actually caused this tanker to rip in half. And so it's just floating, listing there in the water with a crew hang, just sitting there. And they're trying to do what they can to, to stay afloat, to, to save themselves and everything, hoping that someone would come save them. Well, so they send Bernie and his crew out in this little bitty boat, four people on the boat. The boat has a capacity of 12 and Bernie's going across the bar, and, and the waves are huge. You know, think 35, 40, 50-foot waves. And this little boat is just getting tossed and turned and flipped and rolled and all this stuff to the point that the compass breaks off. And by God's grace, they, they are able to find this tanker. And they load up with, I think, at, at, if I'm not mistaken, they ended up having 37 total people on this little boat in a storm in the middle of the ocean. And they're sitting all around the edges just doing whatever they can to do it. It's cold, it's rainy, it's wet. And Bernie decides he's going home. He's going to get them back. And they're like, no, just go this way. You know, we know this route. This way. He's like, no, I'm going to go home. That's where we're supposed to go. And he said, all I have to do, I've lost my compass. All I have to do is I have to look for the lights on the, on the, the bank, and that will guide us home. So he starts to do that, and he's getting, it's middle of the night, getting tired. It's you know dark, 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 and um, he has a, a fiance at home who loves him dearly. And the movie, I'm sure, fictionalizes a little bit, but if you if you watch the end of the movie as he's coming in, once again, I'm going to spoil a movie for you, but it's still worth going to watch. All of the townspeople, because the power in the town goes out. Think Mason two weeks ago. The power in the town goes out, so the lighthouse isn't working, nothing, and they all pull their cars to the side of the, to the coastline, and they all line up, and they turn on their headlights. If you've ever been on the ocean in the middle of the night with no lights, it is completely dark, and Bernie was able to see those lights, and he might have seen one light, but when an entire city came together, 
and put their lights together, it shone so bright that he knew exactly where to go to get all of them home to safety. When we as a church come together in biblical community and we shine our lights, it becomes so bright that the world can't help but see the glory of God. And that is what he's calling us to do here. When our inside becomes so changed and we become the flavor for the world that God desires us to be, our light begins to shine on the outside. This is how the world sees what God has done on the inside. When we're growing in Christ, the world begins to see the light. And then at the end of the verse, it sums it up. I've already said it. The main point of the entire series, the end of verse 16, so that the world may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why we live our lives. God did an amazing, amazing thing for us when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And he did an even more amazing thing when he rose from the dead so that those of us that believe would have eternal life. Why would we want, not want to glorify God? I remember growing up, I would get something that, that I wanted or that I was proud of, and, and I would like brag to my friends that my parents got it for me because I wanted them, my, my friends to know that my parents provided for me. Don't you want to know, the world to know that God's provided for you? You want to shine that light to the world? When we live our lives according to the parables, when we bear fruit, when we have an unshakable faith, when we are a good neighbor to the people around us, when we understand the cost of growing in discipleship and we live in true biblical community, being the salt and light to the world, we do it all, every single bit of it for the glory of God. And this is another sermon for another day. But that's when our lives begin to truly worship God. Not just sitting here on a Sunday morning singing three songs and hearing a message. But our lives exude worship. Our lives are wholly devoted to bringing glory to the Father. And when people see this, their lives are changed. It's a journey. It's a process. There's a cost to it. A sacrifice has to be made. You have to be willing to give things up in your life, to, to, to lose relationships, to lose status, to lose your desires, to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, to glorify him, to make God's name famous. I want to leave you with a quote by C.T. Studd. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's what the parables are about, is to make sacrifices, to live a godly life, a righteous life, so that God's name can be glorified. But in order to do that, you have to have a relationship with him. You have to know that God loves you more than anything in this world. So much so that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. So that in his resurrection, 
you might have eternal life. And we can help you with that this morning. Here in a minute, we're going to have a response time. I'll be down front. The band's going to come up and play. If you would like to know more about that, you can come down and talk to me and we pray, pray with me. Um, and I can help you look at what God says about that. If God's doing something else in, in your life, if you just need to pray, the, the altar will be open. If you would like someone to pray with you, I'll be here. Um, uh, some of the other uh, the, the lay pastors can be there for you. But I understand, and I know, and, and don't hear me wrong, that sometimes it's very, very hard to walk down front in front of people you don't know. And so that's why we have the Welcome Center back in the back. I'll be back there after the service. I would love to visit with you there if, if you're just not ready to come down front for that. Um, and uh, um, But don't leave today without getting it right with God because you don't know what tomorrow brings. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm going to pray, and, uh, um, and, and we're going to just have a time for you to, to do that, uh, to, to just spend some time listening to what God is speaking on your heart and, and make a decision. So Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for empowering us and, and, and challenging us to be salt and light to the world, Lord. And let us become a church, a biblical community that is a city on a hill, that our inward life is becoming so salty that our outward light shines to the world, that no one can mistake what we stand for and who we stand for. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that's struggling today, Lord, if it's, if it's, a, if it's just something going on in their life that they just need to ask you for help with or if they're, if they're ready to just turn their lives over to you, to wholly sell out to you and devote their lives to you and see the newness, the new creation that you have promised them, Lord. I just pray that you would give them the courage to do that this morning, Lord. Father, you gave an unbelievable sacrifice for us. So much so that any sacrifice that we could even think about giving for, of ourselves pales in comparison. And I just pray that you would make us strong and bold enough to give those things up. We love you for the grace you give us. In your name we pray. Amen. You can stand, please. of heaven pour your spirit out pour your spirit out holy anointing the power of your presence pour your spirit out pour your spirit out we need a fresh wind cause we need a fresh wind Fragrance of heaven, pour your spirit out, pour your spirit out, holy anointing, the power of your presence, pour your spirit out, pour your spirit out, pour your spirit out, pour your spirit out. Spirit out, pour your spirit out, pour your spirit out, pour your spirit.
wrapped up the parable series and uh, next week we're going to start a new series it is Easter time Easter is one month away and uh, so we're going to enter into our Easter series it is called last words and I'm really excited about it we're going to look at the last week of Jesus's life and the things that he said on this earth um, from from the triumphal infantry through the cross to what he said after he rose again and then it's actually going to carry through the, the week after Easter, and we'll look at the things that, that he tells um, the disciples before he ascends back into heaven. And so it's an exciting time, and, uh, and, and I'm really excited to bring those messages to you. Uh, and we want you to invite people, and we want to do something new and different here uh, for this year because we get to have Easter in church this year. Um, and uh, we're really excited about it. So we've got a couple things that will help you invite people because I really believe that two days in the church of a year are our Super Bowls, and it's Christmas Eve and Easter. And those are the times that statistics show that people are more likely to come check out a church because they feel obligated to be here. And so we want to make them feel welcome. We want to make them feel like it's home. And so the best way to do that is to invite them. So we've got two tools to help you do that. The first one is um, Jay's got one hold up back there. We've got some yard signs. Um, that we're going to reclaim the yard sign industry from the politics. If you want to take one of those and go put them in your yard and just advertise, it's got our our Easter service at 11 a.m. We're also going to do a Good Friday service this 